you know, these people that are projecting this, they had, he sent me some article. I'm like, I'm not trying to be mean. If they're so smart, then why didn't they predict this, you know, six weeks ago? The fact is, it's just a guess right now. So I do think regardless, and people can argue with me, but there's really no argument that eventually over time, if you take care of the asset, it will go back up. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate, from co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us and don't forget to like and follow along with me on social media as well. My resource freebie this month is the COVID-19 Asset Protection Guide. This includes several of the best practice steps that I myself am implementing at my apartment communities, as well as other syndicators I've spoken with. You can find this guide and practical steps to implement immediately at www.elliepearlman.com resources. So today I have for the second time, first time on Ready to Scale, but the second time on, you know, with me on the show is Mark Kenny. So Mark and his wife, Tamil, they're seasoned real estate investors and the founders of Think Multifamily, a leading multifamily acquisition and education company. Mark and his wife started their real estate career over 25 years ago, have invested in over 6,500 apartment units, and also help others to invest through syndication. Mark, it's really great to have you here on the show for the second time. Ellie, it's good to see you as well. Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell me and the listeners a little bit more about your background and how you got started in, in real estate? I know that you're a, a numbers guy. You used to be a CPA in your past life. So tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. So I'm in Dallas now. I grew up in Michigan, one of seven kids, and uh, I have an identical twin brother. And we grew up with not really much, okay? So we had food and place to live, which is more than a lot of people in the world, but we didn't have any extras and anything we wanted, you know, even a bike. We were buying our own bikes at 10 years old and things like that. I remember as a kid going, this kind of kind of sucks, <laughs> actually, you know, having to do that. I don't want my kids to have to do that. My dad worked a lot of hours, so it wasn't a matter of him, you know, hoarding money. He just didn't have it with seven kids and, and things like that. So early on, both my brother and I were like, we're going to do something business-wise. We wanted to do things like, you know, a sporting goods store and because we were athletic and things like that. You know, kind of lost sight of a little bit and then went to college. Both of us went together and we were seniors in college. We said we wanted to start looking at real estate and multifamily, but really small, like two, two to four units. And really the reason we didn't really have anyone in our family was doing it or any aunt, uncle or anything like that. But it was really one of those things that it made a lot of sense to us because as you mentioned, we are, we're both analytical, both CPAs and I can touch it. I can feel it. 
In this case, I could drive by it because it was right under, you know, two blocks from our house. Actually, this was a block from our house, the first one we bought. And we started buying small properties like that. But I also was working a lot. I was after doing CPA for a couple of years. I did IT consulting, travel lots of times Friday night to Sunday night, come back on the weekends and try to evict people and shovel snow and things like that. And I was married at the time, got married young. And we were like, man, this is not really very good, but continued to buy small properties. Got caught up in corporate world. And then 2008, I started my own IT company and it was doing pretty well, you know, financially had a number of Fortune 100 companies as clients, but I was working, you know, I, I used to say 80, 85 hours, but probably working 90 plus hours consistently every week. I would sleep about three hours a night. And then my wife, Camille, we were on a walk and she's like, this isn't working, you know, and she was thinking about leaving because I was never there. I actually did spend time with the kids, believe it or not, as much as I worked, I was, I found time to spend with them. I'm like, they're going to grow up so fast and they're going to be out of the house. I'm going to spend time with them and ignore my wife, Camille. So it kind of rude awakening to me. And I said, well, you know, if we're going to do it, let's do larger multifamily. We love real estate anyways. We both did since we were young. It was a while. I mean, it took us like a year to get our first deal. We started looking at a bunch of deals and it was frustrating. We looked at other things too, other asset classes, franchises, you name it. Basically something to get me out of my, my current situation. Not financially because I was doing well, but more from an from hours standpoint. So my wife, Tamil, got very engaged as well. And then we just started looking at properties. We got a property after a year, long time, but we got one. And I started scaling back slowly on the IT side. And in about less than three years, I was at zero from an IT consulting perspective. And we were doing multifamily full time. And then later on after that, looked at doing, you know, education piece. But that was kind of the way we got started really in multifamily. So it was, I kind of, I didn't say I didn't have a choice, but I kind of didn't have a choice. If I wanted, you know, have a, a good marriage, I wanted, I needed to do something. That's a very inspiring story. And it's very impressive. You know, you've done well for yourself. And then basically someone is saying, listen, this is not enough. It's it's not only about, you know, providing for your family, but it's providing the attention and, you know, the quality time for everyone. I think it's a very, very important distinction. Distinction, because so, I can tell yeah. you I had thoughts going through my head. I really did. And she knows them too. Like, like, what do you mean? I make good money. I take the kids to school. You pick them up if I can. I'm doing all these things. But basically wasn't doing anything with her. So you're, you're sort of spot on was the money didn't, I mean, yes, you need money to live and, and things like that. Not saying you should be poor, but the fact is that we had, you know, we had more than we needed doing IT consulting. Yeah. And I think it's great that you guys are doing it together. I see you often in many, you know, many conferences and online and offline events. You're always together. You're always, you know, I kind of see you either next to one another or, or on both sides of the room speaking, you know, engaging with people. And I, I think that's interesting. You know, it also attracts certain type of investors or people. And that's the name actually of your company, Think Multifamily. It's all about, you know, your, your kind of showing that you can do it as a family. There's a lot of family values in the brand that you're, you know, representing. And I, I think it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, well, let's dive a little bit into asset and talk a little bit about asset protection. So you and your wife, you're mainly investing in multifamily. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the steps that you've taken to protect your assets 
during the pandemic, maybe, you know, unique ways that usually we don't see from other investors? Yeah. So we use third-party management companies and we have properties in six states and we have essentially four different management companies across those, those six states. So we do rely on them heavily and we've been able to compare kind of who's, who's doing what. So some managed companies were very proactive and you could argue good or bad, frankly, like almost scaring, potentially try to scare tenants into like, whatever you need, we'll do whatever. And if you don't pay your rent, you know, we'll uh, work with you. And I understand those things, but it's a big balance. We've never been in this situation before. No one in, that I know of has ever been in this situation before where we're re- literally not allowed to evict between 60 and 120 days, maybe more in some places. So our whole thing was we kind of want to, you know, we have some cash reserves, obviously, in, in different properties and some are more than others, you know, and some are like, hey, we could go a real long time. And be totally fine. Others are like, hey, I hope, you know, hope we can collect the rents there, you know. One, we asked our PMs to give us daily collections and we asked them to compare it to last month. So for like, you know, April 7th, what was it on March 7th? So we getting daily collections to monitor. We did things, and this isn't anything unique, frankly, is, you know, like prepay, prepay for the month of April and get a discount, gift cards and things like that. And then just trying to offer programs to potential tenants. And, you know, some tenants, unfortunately, probably going to take advantage of the system. I think it comes down to if you weren't treating your tenants with respect and fairly all along, they're going to probably try to take advantage of you. The biggest thing for us really has been is really closely monitoring those collections and then figuring out which expenses we can reduce. Some, you know, maybe landscaping you can hear there. It's getting harder now because, you know, it's getting prime time for that. And there are other things like on a rehab. So some of the CapEx stuff we were doing, we scaled back. Some of it to do less on the interior and just kind of turn turn the units. People that are renewing or, or they're looking to vacate, offering them, you know, rent with no, char- no upcharge from where it was and things like that. So I think it's a lot of little things, frankly. And then you have the other complete side of it is, you know, whether your lenders, what do you do? And I know a lot of people are completely jumping right ahead to forbearance, which means you work with a lender and, you know, you don't pay initially, but you're going to pay eventually. And there are a lot of limitations, frankly, with that program. So mm-hmm. to me, you know, they said, hell, oh, by April 1st. And like, how would anyone know by April 1st how April is going to look? You know what I mean? We were so far into March that that didn't really impact anybody. So looking at April. So People were just jumping on that. And and I'm not saying you shouldn't call your lender, but we were like, let's kind of see how we're looking on certain properties. We have about 40 properties. So some people, like I said, are being probably proactive on that. But to me, you don't have any data points right now. What do you give your lender to say, well, yeah, I'm going in for a barren. So it's like, well, compare, give me proof that these people didn't pay and why they didn't pay and they lost their job. Well, we're at April, we were at April 1st or end of March. We had no data points then. So if it's required to do that, to, you know, save a property, then I think in this, this day and age, some cases you're looking to do what you can to survive on some properties. Some will do better than others, but, you know, people probably need to get out of their head. They're going to get that. They're probably not going to get, you know, big distributions during this time right now. Frankly, I think it's, I'd rather save the cash. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that during a forbearance, you cannot distribute to investors at all. And it's not only during the 90 days where you're 
hitting the pause button. It's also for the entire 12 to 18 months while you're making those forbearance payments, none of your investors can get paid. I know it's not going to maybe impact your credit or at least that's what they say technically, but the next time you're going to get a deal, guess what? Lenders are going to know that you have an, I'm sure it's going to be a question. Have you applied for a forbearance? You would pay for it in future deals. You're going to get higher interest rate because they're just evaluated your risk as someone who's more likely to default on their payments. So it, whatever you can do. Yeah. You do can't it. evict during exactly. that time either for you're talking exactly. 12 to 18 months. So I'm not saying that it's not an option because I think you have to look at all your options, but mm -hmm. I know people literally that were just jump. They were calling, calling the lender in March, no joke. End of March. I'm like, what, like, what do you, like, what do you tell them? You have, you have no information to tell them. You don't them. have any data. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. So we're recording this. It's April 7th. It takes probably until the 10th because some people are still going to be a little bit late, but they will bring the check to you. It's going to take at least a week, minimum a week, you know, until you know exactly how much you collected. So I think you're absolutely right. And I would not recommend anyone to communicate with their lenders without going through a lawyer first and don't have anything in writing. I can say that as a former lawyer because they will be used against you. So be very careful. All right, let's talk about the million dollar question. And I want to move kind of from the asset protection to strategy. You know, I've been hearing a lot of back and forth, you know, conversations between sponsors. Some are saying this is the best time to buy. We've been waiting for this since 2010 or nine. The market was hot. We were overpaying or others were overpaying for deals. We've been waiting for an opportunity. This is the time to buy. And then you hear others saying, but there's so much uncertainty. Now is not the time to make any move. What are your thoughts? Should we buy now or should we wait until this crisis is over? So I personally think you should always be looking. I don't care what's going on in the marketplace. There are definitely some unknowns. I'd be a lot more concerned if this was a housing crash like it was in 08 and 09. It's not. It doesn't mean that there can't be big, huge impacts to negative on this or, or, you know, they're dumping, at least in the short term, you know, $2 trillion in the economy. And you can argue that that's, you know, long term, not a good thing to do. But in the short term, it's going to stimulate something just it's going to have to. I think it depends how long the shutdown really happens. If it comes, people are back on, you know, end of March, early April. I think personally, the impact would be less. But think of it, any single person right now in the world is trying to sell a property, they have to sell a property. There's literally no other reason why anybody that with the right mind would list a property right now to sell it. But you have situations in every case. You have, whether it's divorce or medical or, you know, partnership, there's always situations. So like last week, we got multiple deals sent to us that were deals we bid on, you know, would have been probably 60 days ago and we didn't get, we weren't awarded the, the contract, but the buyer that was awarded the contract the buyers have backed out of the deal that provides opportunity to my mind. You know, any, any seller that's selling, you can go back to them and say, well, this property is, you know, overnight, you know, unfortunately went down in value for them and lending terms have changed and, you know, putting in the interest reserves and things like that. So it's a totally different deal today. Personally, we're looking, we're actively looking. There are a lot less deals, frankly, in the market right now. But we have deals right now. I mean, there are a couple that were just listed and it's like, you you know already off the bat that the, the seller is, is in dire need to sell. 
And they're also, if they're in dire need, they're going to go with somebody that can close deals. They're not going to take a chance on somebody that's new or, you know, fairly inexperienced. So that does give us a little leg up because we've closed a lot of deals and some of the brokers, you know, someone in Atlanta, we've closed like 13 deals with one broker, right? So when deals come back to the market because someone else can't get them, plus we get good lending, you know, terms are good, changing, you know, by the day. You know, they changed a lot again last week, and I, I don't see them probably, frankly, changing that much more as far as what they're requiring, but they, they changed quite drastically on the lending side, and that gives us uh, another opportunity. So, you know, people are like, oh, you know, cap rates are going up. Well, what data points do you have? Now, logically, I would agree if I'm paying less for a property, but, you know, properties really aren't selling right now. So, you don't have the data to say, well, guys said, oh, you know, cap rates should go up two points. Based on what? I mean, you know, these people that are projecting this, they had he sent me some article. I'm like, I'm not trying to be mean. If they're so smart, then why didn't they predict this, you know, six weeks ago? The fact is, it's just a guess right now. So I do think regardless, and people can argue with me, but there's really no argument that eventually over time, if you take care of the asset, it will go back up. How long will it take? I don't know. But when people are talking about cap rates, and they're like, what are you going to do if the cap rates go up? It's like, then we're, if it were cash flowing, we're going to hold the property longer, right? I mean, the last recession, I think was, you know, 22 months, you know, that's long, but that was a, that was a financial issue. So if this comes back quicker, I think we won't, we'll see lenders being a little more generous, you know, and we'll see cap rates. Maybe they might go up right now because everyone has the selling has to do it, but the inventory is so small that those will, might have a very negligible impact in the overall grand scheme of things, because we probably have you know, 2% of the inventory that we typically would have this time of the, the, you know, this year. So if we sell some handful of properties here and there, cap rates are higher. And we, you know, three months from now, start selling properties again. You know, I don't know how big of an impact it's going to have, but, but yeah, we're actively looking, you know, people that sit on the sidelines, frankly, who've been sitting on the sidelines or people that are doing things that I haven't bought for the last six years because it's too hot. Well, frankly, you've lost out a lot of money. That's true. I think the key is having the cash reserves which, you know, is easier on some properties than other to just be able to survive. If you can survive during these downtimes and you're a patient and hold the property long enough, it will go back up. I don't know how long, but it, it will go back up. Yeah, that's a very good point. Do you think that your strategy is basically to keep, you know, looking and carefully buying? Do you believe that there's enough demand from, from what you see from investors to invest in those deals? That's the bigger question, actually, in my mind. It's mixed. There's no question that some investors have gone, you know, totally silent saying, hey, I'm, I'm not doing yeah. anything right now. This is too. I think somebody that knows, hey, you got a deal. It was, make these numbers up. It was, you know, $90,000 a door five weeks ago. Now we're getting in for 80 or 75, wherever it is, a door. And by the way, we have 12 months of interest payments. Plus we have working capital and another contingency of 10%. We have payments for three years of mortgage payments that should give investors, you know, some, some comfort. And then you have people in the stock market that, okay, the last two days, I agree, they've done well, but I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, crazy, crazy. Some people are going to take those gains from the market and look to put it somewhere. But I think there's no question that they're going to be less investors investing right now in a very short term. And then I think it's going to actually offer more opportunities because People are going to be like, this stock market thing is just, you know, a roller coaster like crazy. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see on the, the capital out there. Yeah. Yeah. I think you made a very good point. If you have enough reserves, 
then you can do pretty well or maybe maybe not pretty well with all your your pro on all your properties but you can survive this so uh, you know what we did is we went back to all of our investments and we looked at how much money we had on you know capex budget just in case we need that money to pay the debt for instance or any other essential you know expense we looked at the break even analysis that changed since we we've purchased the property and say okay what is the percentage if half the building is not paying us half the building stop paying us are we able to pay the rent the mortgage are we able to pay utilities and understand what's you know our exposure and investors are asking for those figures and when you're communicating with investors and you say hey we ran the numbers if i don't know i'm just making it up 40 percent of the units of the, the tenants are stopped paying only then we're breaking even, then even in the crazy world of today, thinking about, you know, 200 unit apartment building where almost half are stopped paying, that's still pretty extreme. So that kind of help, it, it helps putting things in perspective and say, okay, you know, we, we understand now how to kind of quantify the risk because that's the, the focus. If you can't really quantify the risk, then then it's, you know, what do you communicate to investor? What price do you put on the next deal? You know, the next LOI that you, you send out. Yeah, I, I think all of those are, are, you know, very important, you know, points. And hopefully it's short term, right? Hopefully you're not like, you yeah. know, we've always looked at break-even occupancy, break-even rents, things like that. But hopefully it's like, okay, yeah, you have a few months of a dip, whatever, pick it. Even if it's a year, if you survive, it's going to go back up. Then you're, you know, a lot of other investments are just going, they're done, right? I mean, you're talking, you know, they're not surviving. Very, very many, a lot of businesses will not survive. And if you can survive, like to your point, you know, with let's say 40% economic vacancy, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also, it shows you if you bought the property at the right price, because if you bought it, if you overpaid, then you're the your mortgage payments are going to be much higher than what you can handle right now, which is, you know, part, part of the, the equation. So I want to kind of move into the next kind of topic and talk about the process. So assuming that, you know, you found a deal and you want to take advantage of the fact that right now you're saving, you know, five, 10, $20,000 per door, which is a dream that we've all wanted to be in that place, you know, years ago and, and even two months ago, what would you say is going to change in the acquisition process? Is it similar to how it was two, three months ago? What things, you know, what kind of challenges do you see in that arena? Yeah, I think the the one you have is the legal aspect that things are going to take longer. I mean, this is no joke. I had some issues with uh, my bank account yesterday. I was on the phone for two hours and 22 minutes with the bank. And then finally they said, then it was automated, right? And they said, we're sorry, we're closed. Call back tomorrow. And wow. so whether it's title, banks, everything is going to take longer. So installers know that. Then you have the other aspect of what happens if you're under contract and the lender really does come back and says, we're not going to give you the money. They can do that, right? And app, app fee, well, well, you know, give you back, we'll give you back your money for your app fee. We're not going to give you the money for the loan. So before we never had financing contingencies, you know, for the last whatever, you know, years and years, right? Well, now you're going to get it and putting things in there around numbers and, you know, the occupancy number, which is a little less important, frankly, it's really more the collections, 
now. It's kind of a little more different focus, NOI and things like that. And then you have the, that's like the legal. And then you have the physical piece. Okay, what happens? You go under contract and you have to go visit the property. Our due diligence company we use, we use on our properties, very, very tech savvy for one. So he has it where he has 3D modeling, virtual reality. I mean, he has a bunch of stuff, this guy, you know, company. So what company you, is this? It's, it's Heritage. Heritage. Mm-hmm. We use them for all the due diligence. And they've been great. And so they could go there and they, they, they continue to go there. They're doing a bunch of construction stuff right now, rehab. The, the issue you run into, what happens if the tenant doesn't want you to come in? Well, they're actually all masked up and they have gloves and they like, they look like they're very safe, right? For somebody getting the comfort level and not everyone's going to let them in, but it's been higher. We did, we did one not that long ago and the percentage was, was very high. Some of people that they got into and there were some that just said, Hey, I'm not going to do it. You know, then you say, okay, well, what do you do? Let's say a hundred units and you get into 80 of them. Well, 20% in my mind is, is still a pretty big problem. I know lenders aren't even requiring you to get in all of them, which I don't know what the right number is, but I mean, I would be, I would have to be in 90 some percent of them before I would move forward on a property. People have done that all the time. Like, hey, how many people ask, how many units should we go look at? 20, 25%? Like all of them. You know, mm-hmm. before we had issues where we couldn't get in because someone changed locks and we would, we had one property, two or eight doors and we, we drilled 36 locks. No joke to get in. So your guys, they're basically a uh, heritage guys. They're all suited up and they put on masks. They look like CDC, you know, kind of employees. They're walking in and they're, so they're protecting themselves and the tenants from. That's right. Interesting. Okay. From any disease. And if you don't want to go for whatever reason, they'll, they'll stream it live back to you. And they're very, very deep. They take 35 to 40 pictures of every interior of every single unit. So very, very detailed. And what do you do with the other 20%? Well, that's to me, if we couldn't get in 20% of them, I wouldn't, and we really couldn't, and we're going to close the deal. I wouldn't move forward, probably. I really wouldn't. I think we, I wouldn't have to probably feel comfortable getting 90 some percent, 90 some around there. Because even if you say have something legally, I mean, you're an you know, attorney, right? Say, okay, well, hey, Mr. Seller, when we can actually get any of these, like, you know, a month after closing, two months after closing, we're going to ask for a credit. Well, if you couldn't get into some of them, then I would want some money escrowed by the seller. When we close the deal, we're putting whatever the number is, 500 grand in an escrow. And you, Mr. Seller, don't get it. We'll, we'll decrease it down as we get into the units to look at them. But trying to go back to anybody after the fact and collect, good luck. You're going to spend money yeah, doing it. So the money needs to be in escrow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting approach and very, very good idea because it is problematic. Even if there's you know money sitting in escrow, it's a little bit challenging. Okay, you're 60 days post-closing. Now you have mold in unit 2207. Now you can't prove that the mold was there unless you have an open ticket that the, you know, you need to prove that there was no open ticket when you bought it. So maybe you can get a list of all the open tickets that the PM has so you can verify, but it's still not 100% proof because maybe they didn't record it. Maybe they went, ahead, they went and erased some, you know, tickets. It, it gets tricky. It gets tricky for sure. And maybe one of the admins, you know, totally throwing them out there. Maybe we're going to have seen little robots or little, you know, little, little robots going around doing due diligence for us. I don't know. That should be the case regardless because they're much less, you know, I think the likelihood of a robot making a mistake is probably lower than in a human that walks 200, 100, you know, 300 units in as one day. As long as they know their floor plan, they would know exactly what to do. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Have all the pictures yeah. for us and things like that. So, but I, th- I think there, there are some ways to kind of help, you know, ease some of that pain or if you're like, Hey, I can't get in a bunch of them, but if you're getting like 50% of them, I mean, it's not even a, a, a question in my mind. I'm not moving forward with the deal. There's no way there's, there are too many. Too much risk, and, yeah. 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 And, and what do you do with collections in the PL? So basically let's say, you know, we will have April's financials, but then you sign a contract and you move forward. It takes about, you know, 60, maybe 90 days to close if you have an extension or two. And then what do you do? You're looking at when you get the May and maybe even June financials and they're much worse than April, but you're already under contract. What do you do then? Yeah, we've had, even before COVID-19, we've had, verb- we don't always get away with it. We have verbiage in our contract that will allow us based on the NOI, us getting rebates, credits towards the purchase price. But you, you have to be careful whether you do a credit towards purchase price or credit because that could reduce your loan proceeds. So, you know, maybe it's a credit for repairs, so, something along those lines. But we've had NOI targets. And if they don't meet them, then they have to give us, you know, we pay less for the property, essentially. Yeah. And I think this is an amazing tip, by the way. That's what we've done with one of our properties. But you're right. I mean, when you have a new NOI that is lowered, the lender pays attention and you can get a cut in, you know, proceeds. But you want to know what is the the most up-to-date rent roll and P&L right before you close. And if there's a significant change, you have to tell the lender. You can't get away with it because you don't want to mess with bad bad boy, you know, carve outs, holding on material information, but you, you do want to know. But I like the idea of putting the credit towards, what was it that you said? I think like renovation. Repairs or something. Repairs, you know, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And not basically reduce the price. So, because also if you reduce the price, that's considered retrade. And you can really, maybe not really, but I can impact your kind of credibility when you're working with brokers because you don't want to be perceived as someone who's retrading. And it's one of the questions they ask you actually on the questionnaire that you're getting as a buyer. Have you ever done any retrade and why and what happened there? Because that's a, a red flag that you're just going to, you know, because some buyers, their tactic is just to put a high number, get get the deal. And then they find all the things that that they can possibly find. And they'll come back and say, hey, we didn't know about this, 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 and this. Here's a million dollar less. Let's move forward. So, Right. You know, some people would argue with the, you know, not reducing the price. If you have a higher price, your, your taxes, because some, some cities, you know, states require disclosure. So your taxes could be higher by having a higher price, right? But mm-hmm. I still think from a loan proceed perspective, you're probably better off getting the credit. But yeah, that those are things you could do to try to help during that time. And, you know, who knows, six months from now, we might be back to where we were, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully it's going to be shorter than that. Yeah. Well, Mark, any final thoughts or, you know, advice before we move to the lightning round questions? You know, it's on, it's a little bit little unknowns out there, right? So put things in place, like with your process, stuff, put things in place that are going to give you more data. I keep talking about data a little bit because people are acting like they have data and it doesn't exist. It's just now existing, right? So work off the facts. Don't work off someone saying, oh, cap rates are going up, you know, to 8%. I mean, there's, there's nothing to, to say that. I mean, so people get scared because of that more so than, than anything. And I'm not saying that these people can't be right. I'm not saying that. But if you can cash flow a property and continue to cash flow it, the cap rate means nothing to you at all unless you're going to do a refi or supplemental loan or a sale. Mm-hmm. So Yes, on paper, your properties were going to be worth less. But if you're still cash flowing just like you were before, 
and your debt payments the same, then just stick with it. Be patient. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love, you know, you were saying worthless, which I think that's the right approach to see it, it in the short term. But it's, there's a huge difference between a property that is worthless than a property that is basically worthless, which is pretty extreme. Because even a property with a hundred percent, you know, with a zero percent economic occupancy, I mean, nobody's paying. It's still not worthless. It's worth less, but not worthless. And you know, you know, people even with stocks, people are like, oh, I lost money in the stock market today. And like, what did you sell? No, I didn't sell, but I lost money. It's like you didn't sell, you didn't lose money, you didn't make money. Just like real estate, you know, you're not making mm-hmm. money, or you know, if you're less, you know, if you have to sell property to make money. So. Cash flow is going to be king, really. Oh, yes. Cash flow is king. I love cash flow. So let's move over to the last part of our conversation, the lightning round questions. Question number one, Mark, what's your favorite hobby? Working out. Working out. Nice. What do you do exactly? Pretty much just weights and, and then some cardio hit and things like that. Unfortunately, all the gyms are closed. I'm doing it at home, which I don't like at all. But I'm still doing it, so. All right. But what's the one thing that people don't know about you? Both my wife and I are twins. So most people don't really? know Really? Mm-hmm. Ah, I did know that. That's that's really great. Do you have twins? Any of your kids are twins? or No. No, because no. usually genetic. Yeah, I'm identical. And so it's kind of a fluke. And then my wife, she has a sister. My wife has a sister twin, but they're fraternal. So most people know I'm a twin just because it's different things. But most people don't know that she's a twin. Wow. Interesting. What do you wish you had known when you just started buying real estate? Overraise. Always have more money. How much do you usually overraise? 10, 20%? We usually have about 18%. Just the way it works out about 18% normal without the max raise. That's kind of more like the, the minimum and then try to raise above that. So I would say at least that it really depends how much you're using for CapEx. We do 18% minimum. Nice. That's very helpful. I well, we do now, way. frankly. Yeah. So to be to be frank, we haven't always done that. Yeah, it, it, same here. It, it takes time to figure out that this is what you should do. It's just trial and error. And then, what is the number one advice to real estate investors who want to scale their business or portfolios, especially now during you know a pandemic? What are your uh, thoughts? Get, ed, get real education. Kind of block out the noise, frankly. And it, I mentioned earlier, I think you should always be looking, whether you think it's a good time or not. You should still be looking. You're gonna learn something new every time you look at something, you just are. And uh, you're gonna build those relationships. So even if you're not a buyer right now, building those broke relationships. So I would say just always be active no matter what. Don't. I'm not saying you shouldn't be cautious about things, but I'd say people overreact, frankly, in my opinion, lots of times. Yeah, I totally agree. Last question is, that's the quickest question. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you and learn how to work with you or for any other reason? Yeah, my email is mark, M-A-R-K at thinkmultifamily.com. That's the, the best way to get a hold of me. All right, perfect. Well, Mark, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to see you again and to host you for the second time on the podcast. I really, really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Ellie. I appreciate it.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.